0: The Onscript Podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at Onscript Podcast, and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Onscript. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Matt Lynch joining you today from Vancouver, where I recently moved to work at Regent College, and I'm very excited about that. I'm a co-host of the podcast, along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. Special thanks for help from Ed Hatkey, who produces this, this show, Faithfully Each Week, to Rebecca Terhune for marketing and media help, and to James Steinbach for help with the website and development. So thanks for tuning in, everyone. I am very excited about this episode with my friend and... Uh, Short-time colleague, Chris Green. Uh, We worked together in the UK for, uh, I think, about two years. And um, really fantastic guy. And I think you'll enjoy this conversation. and will be duly challenged and inspired. Uh, Just a quick word about the audio. For some reason, there was an electrical hum in the background of my audio during the recording. And I'm not sure why, uh, but I'm still getting set up here in Vancouver. And I don't have a normal Arrangement. So uh, I look forward to being a bit more established, but uh, so apologies for that in this episode, but for future episodes, hopefully that won't be an issue, uh, but I think you'll still enjoy the episode. Thanks so much. Hello, everyone. Welcome to OnScript, where we are keeping you off Netflix one episode at a time. My guest today is Dr. Chris Green, who is professor of public theology at Southeastern University in Lakeland, Florida. He's the author of several books, including Surprised by God, The End is Music, Toward a Pentecostal Theology of the Lord's Supper, and our book of choice for today, Sanctifying Interpretation, Vocation, Holiness, and Scripture, published this year in its new edition by CBT Press. Or is it even out yet, Chris? It is, yeah, okay. j- just, okay. just now. Okay. Uh, he's also the author of Dope Boy Magic. I just, uh, I just had to throw that one in because uh, I know where gr- you're
1: headed with this.
0: Yeah, yeah. When I, when I punched your name into Amazon, it came up. So, um, did yeah, you write that? Ex- I did not. I okay. did not. I, I obviously I'm jealous. I wish yeah. I had written it, but yeah, no. I know. <laughs> I it it, it might that. it might steal the show, you know, in book titles. But um, <laughs> the end is music. Uh-oh. Is yeah. All right, Chris. Welcome to On Yeah. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, well, um, yeah, it's great to, to uh, have you join OnScript. Um, I've gotten to know you a bit through teaching together at WTC and uh, you strike me as someone where there, there are multi, m- multiple layers to Chris Green. Um, so it, it'd be great to, uh, uh, if you could just introduce yourself a little bit to our listeners and um, just tell us a little bit about how you ended up studying theology.
1: Yeah. I asked this question. I was on a podcast recently as a host, and I asked a friend, Dr. Chris House, who teaches rhetoric at Ithaca College, and he started eight generations back. Oh, wow. In
0: yeah. if so you family. can beat that.
1: I don't think I can do that. In fact, interestingly enough, I can't go back that far. My great grandfather immigrated here to the States from Russia. And we have his immigration papers. His name was Joseph Solziski, and he listed his native language as Yiddish. But we can't get back further than that um, in terms of of family history. And striking bit of detail on that story is that he... Changed his name to Joseph Green at some point while living in Oklahoma, and this was before he married and before he had children. It's a so shortened didn't... form
0: of Solzinski,
1: right? <laughs> Few people know that, but yes, yeah, I, obviously, yeah, yeah. you've got your finger on that, on that history. Yeah, yeah he, he, uh, he changed his name, got married, had kids. His kids didn't learn about this until after he died. And the way they found out is when he died, they were working to arrange a military funeral, and the military said, we have no record of Joseph Green and with those details. And it turns out in his military records, he's Joseph Solziski, And that's, yeah, that's how we, our family found out. But that's as far back historically as I can go. A little more to the point. I mean, I, I grew up in Oklahoma in a independent Pentecostal church, a holiness Pentecostal church, which was I often say neither really about holiness nor about Pentecost, but it was mostly concerned with the way women dressed and how loud the preacher was, right? That, okay. that, that was the <laughs> primary concern.
0: Well, I mean, for some people that's the, those are the markers of holiness. Yeah, exactly. Holiness
1: equals, you know, how long the woman's dress is and how loud the preacher's sermon gets. And I mean, I'm being a a little bit glib. I mean, that's where it began though for me. And even when I was a kid, I mean, I was, I was pretty curious about, about scripture and kind of what it implied. I remember, and I talk about this a little bit in the book at the end, I think kind of my first real theological crisis was hearing the story of Achan, the story of, of him and his children, his, his animals being killed. And, you know, I remember it so vividly, like confronting my dad with the horror of that experience, yeah. and so yeah, I you think talk you talk
0: about pacing around in your living room and just, oh, yeah. this is
1: really, yeah, and I've been living in that house again the last seven weeks since we've moved from Florida, and so yeah, I was thinking about that again just yesterday being being in that same space, you know thirty five years later, and i it's still so vivid for me, like the the troubledness of that. And so I think I think that's where it began for me in terms of the this can't be right this something's not right at least, and I think that it was in college reading George MacDonald's Fantasties and Lilith, the two novels fantasy novels that he did that awakened me to oh I'm supposed to do this vocationally right that this is this is kind of essential for me so I think that's. That's the way in for me, but that it all it all turns on that Aiken story. I think.
0: Yeah. Well, this you know I was surprised reading your book how much sort of the the troubled parts of the Old Testament come up in your thinking about uh, the task and uh, you know vocation of interpretation. Um, and I and it's interesting because you talk about how the the struggle of interpretation is is actually crucial to what. God is doing in scripture in us. And, and I've often talked about part of the reason I like to wrestle with the hard texts with students in the classroom is because I see that as a, as a opportunity for discipleship. So it's, it was, it was striking how um, resonant that was with me.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think it was, you know, there's something about that original experience with Aiken. I, I guess, this is probably too simple. I mean, we're we're not always the best narrators of our own stories, but I think I think for me, you know, the the troubling parts of scripture have always been the ones that have and kind have of moved me to respond for whatever reason, right? So I, I do I think you're right. I mean, one of the this is the second edition of the book. When I wrote the first edition, one of the first readers of it is a dear friend of mine, Ricky Moore, who teaches Old Testament and particularly the prophets. And that's one of the things he said to me after reading that th- those years ago, that he was struck by how concerned it is with the Old Testament and how he was taken off guard a bit by that. And, and that wasn't really conscious on my part. I didn't decide to do it. I mean, I think that's just my story. You know, It just happens to be what, what my attention is drawn to.
0: Yeah, you mentioned George MacDonald. That's another point of contact with my own journey as well, um, because I can remember um, in high school, it wasn't necessarily that I was having challenges around violence in the Old Testament, um, but just struggling to find a a, a way of engaging with my faith that was um, meaningful. And uh, a friend of mine, actually a Sunday school teacher, pointed me to George MacDonald, and it was his... It was, uh, in particular, The Curate's Awakening. Uh, I don't know if you ever read that one. but I haven't um,
1: read it, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm familiar with some of his, you know, the, the Curdy novels and that stuff. So um, it, it's, I, I'm familiar with that world, right? The way MacDonald writes and kind of the kind of realities he creates. W- what about that novel hit you?
0: Two things, I think, were, first of all, the idea of the intellectual uh, and spiritual awakening combining um together in a young person. So that that was something I longed for and I didn't really even know it. Um and and then secondly, it was McDonald's attention to the theme of the intersection of justice and mercy in God and that those two things are never separate from each other. And this is something he he comes back to at multiple points and that that I found that just fascinating and and compelling. And it was something that you know. That's something you can work through and work on your whole life forever. That's exactly right, and, and that that's
1: exactly what it was for me too. The I was just talking with, with a friend a couple of days ago about this very point. He asked about McDonald, and I said, you know, I said if you imagine, you know, this gi- giant vault with all of these locks, you know, I think that the first the first click that started unlocking the locks for me was justice and mercy are identical, right? That, that justice and mercy are one in God. And theologically, when that clicked, right, it, it's just the, the locks started unlocking one after another. And I think they still are. I mean, I still feel like whatever new insight I come to, it it resonates with that, yes, of course, justice and mercy are one in God. And I think that is, yeah, that that's basic to me, not only in terms of my story, but also in terms of the, my theological commitment. I think that's right at the heart of what I believe about God and therefore believe about everything that is entailed in that.
0: Yeah. So, so then when you come back to, as an adult, the story of Aiken, what, what new angle do you have or ways of wrestling? So if if you were to talk to a young Chris Green who is struggling with the story of Aiken, which if people aren't familiar with it, this is where Aiken steals uh, goods that were supposed to be um, reserved only for God uh, when when the Israelites destroyed Jericho. And he and his family and his animals were all stoned to death uh, because of that. So very challenging, troubling passage. What What would you say to young Chris Green, who's pacing around wondering what to do?
1: Well, I mean, one of the things that is really important to me is to say first, it's good that you're troubled, right? I mean, this is for me the, the decisive shift is what if the troubledness I feel when I read scripture is what I'm supposed to feel right? What if this isn't precisely not a sign of my rebellion or my lack of understanding, but a sign of my yieldedness to God and that I am understanding what I'm supposed to understand, at least at this point, right? To be moved toward something else, right? So I I, I think pay attention to that troubledness and Ask, what's it arising from? I mean, what particularly are you troubled with? I mean, what what do you find so frightening or terrifying about it? What What is the source of the trouble? And let that kind of lead you into prayer and reflection and conversation, right? So th- I, I think the first thing is don't be troubled by your troubledness, right? And I, I think at least the Christianity I was raised in, any sense of troubledness was a sign that something horrible had gone wrong, right? That, and I, I, we could get into why I think that is the short answer would be, I think that we, the Christianity that was shaping me was mostly concerned about keeping the conscience quiet. And so troubledness, of course, was all the same, right? If, if the, if the only goal is to keep your conscience quiet, then Whatever is troubling you is is beside the point. That you're troubled is enough um, to to be frightened by. So I I think it's important. At least it was important for me not to be troubled by my own trouble. Right to to let to let let myself be upset with God about what was said, and and then carry that into conversation and prayer. But I also think, and I talk about this a little bit in the book too. Now, when I go back to the Aiken story, I notice that it's a lot more subtle than I could have ever picked up on as a kid. Right? I mean, the, the the way the story is told, you know, is I think it's designed to provoke the reader, but it's subtle enough to make you tilt your head too. Right? In terms of wait a minute, what's actually happening here? And. Of course that was lost on me as a kid. So I think I would say don't be troubled by your troubledness and learn to pay attention to what the text is actually saying. Don't jump too quickly to assuming that you know. Pay attention to the details, to what's not said as well as what's said. And and ask, wait a minute, is it really saying what I think it's saying? Mhm.
0: Mhm. Yeah, so I, I think, think I would start there. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. And and I always say that y- you first have to establish what what the text is actually saying so that you're not responding to the wrong, the wrong problem. Right? So if you, if you're trying to work out, okay, what's my approach to dealing with challenging texts in the, in the Bible, Old Testament, whatever, you have to first hear them on their own terms. So that's, let's talk about um, kind of the central argument in your book, sanctifying interpretations. You write that the most central claim of my argument is that God does not intend to save us from interpretation but through it. And then you, um, you go on to say that interpretation can be a uh, soul harrowing and purgative. So a- at the risk of, of just asking you to recap your, your book, um, how is this so that God intends to save us uh, through interpretation and not from it?
1: Well, this, this goes back to, you know, I think in a lot of ways, a, a reaction against hopefully a breaking free of the diseased forms of Christianity that, that I encountered. I I think just as we were motivated to ease conscience or keep the conscience quiet, I think we also were like many evangelicals in the States and, and I think globally too, but perhaps especially in the States, we were pressing for, ever greater efficiency and simplicity, right? Like that we, we just wanted things to be as simple as they possibly could be. And because of that, and because we wanted efficiency and because we wanted to avoid pain, right? So, I mean, there, there's a lot at play there, but our, our kind of avoid our pain avoidance, our addiction to simplicity, our ambition for efficiency, all of these things made it so that difficulty was a sign, again, that something had gone terribly wrong. If something was difficult, you were, you were failing in, in one way or another, right? And what I've come to believe is that difficulty is not in and of itself bad for us. That, in fact, one way of putting it is that I think difficulty is not a result of the fall, theologically speaking. Difficulty is built into the, the nature of things for our good, for our development, so I think, you know, Irenaeus's kind of soul-forming world, I think, is half right. I think what he misses is the ways in which the nature of things is, is bent by sin, but what evil has done to it, and the way that we are bent. But I think his essential insight that God means for us to be formed through difficulty, I think is right. So I would say something like suffering is a result of the fall, but difficulty is not. And... We need difficulty to be formed, right? But we need a particular kind of difficulty because of the kinds of creatures we are. And this is, you know, in the early parts of the book, I talk about, you know, human beings are not archangels and we're not elephants, right? We're, we are a particular kind of creature and we're an interpreting creature. That's, that's what we do. We mediate, we mediate love, we mediate meaning and we, you know, in classical theological terms, you know, our, our rationality is not like the angels or like the beasts, right? We are, we have a particular way of knowing and making known what we know, and that is interpretation, right? We, we translate and interpret and that it's difficult is good for us because it's in that difficulty that our skills and sensibilities are formed. For interpreting more faithfully and mediating more fully what, what God means to mediate through us. Right. So I think those are the kind of theological commitments I'm working with, right? That we we share in Christ's mediation of all things as human beings. And the more like Christ we are, the more faithfully we mediate. And in order to become like Christ we need the difficulty of the interpretive process. So the scripture then becomes this kind of gift of difficulty to us, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's a troubling gift, but it's, it's moving us to good trouble.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, the, the phrase good trouble came to mind as I was reading your book and you were, uh, I don't think you used it, but it, I it's, don't, but I should have. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, I was talking with a friend the other day about, the immediacy of Scripture as well, and and so at the other end of the spectrum, you so you're you're talking about the sort of struggle of interpretation, and that that's a formative process and and an important one, in our own spiritual growth and maturity. There's also, um, I, I suppose, people could raise questions and say, well, I feel like Scripture speaks immediately to me and into my life, and and that that you're you're kind of putting. Uh, wanting to sort of put steps and barriers in between the immediacy of scripture that I experienced. What would you say in response to that? Well, I, I do think that
1: I, what I don't want to do, and I hope this comes clear in the book is, is some kind of, I don't want to institute some kind of method. What I'm trying to do instead is suggest that let's not run from the difficulty. So I'm less I'm not proposing, at least I don't want to be proposing some kind of hermeneutical approach that if you just do this, then it will yield the right results, right? I don't, I don't want this to be some kind of technology. It's more of a kind of pastoral theological response for people who struggle with what Scripture says, right? And to say, wait a minute, don't, don't be troubled by your troubledness, right? Like that's, it's good. But of course, I do think there are plenty of times in any of our lives when scripture so to speak speaks directly to us right i mean and i don't i don't I, that happens to me and for me and I, I i don't think in and of itself that that's an issue I, I would add though a caution that i think there's a need for a good a healthy suspicion about the ways in which scripture speaks to us i mean i i'm formed in the pentecostal tradition so one of the things i like to come back to is to talk about the difference between what God is saying and what I hear God saying, right? So, you know, in crisis management courses, they tell you, you know, if you're, if you're in a conflict, say back to the person, what I hear you saying is, and and see if that's met with a yes or a no or almost. And I think something like that is important whenever we say scripture has spoken to us. It's to say, okay, what I hear Scripture saying is this, but perhaps I've misheard. Perhaps I've, I've overlooked something essential. Perhaps I'm reading into it a bit much. You know, I, I think we need to kind of hold our readings of Scripture with open hands. But I don't, what I don't want to do is, is suggest that if it's not difficult, it's worthless. I, I don't mean that. I, I just mean I think it will often be difficult, and you shouldn't mm-hmm. be frightened by that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's in those difficult places often that the most growth happens. Um, so you, you also, you talked about growing up in the holiness tradition and holiness plays a major role in your book. Um, so it's not something you've run from, the concept of holiness and, and it as an important part of our vocation. So ha- why does holiness play such an important role in your book on interpretation of scripture? I wouldn't necessarily jump, you know, put those two things together immediately in my mind.
1: Yeah, i a funny story on that. So when I was brainstorming this book years and years ago, you know how this works, right? I mean, you, you get an initial kind of hunch and you work with it for a while do some papers. And or at least this is how I usually process. And it was early in that process. I was at Emory in Atlanta and went to lunch with Luke Timothy Johnson and I told him about this project, right? He, at that time, he's probably written 10 books since then, but at the time he was working on a similar project. And so we're, we're just chatting about it. And one of the things he told me is he's like, I don't think you can make that connection work in a way that your readers will be able to follow. He's like, I think those are separate projects. And I didn't take his advice, which is probably a bad Sh- sign. Challenge but I, taken. For, <laughs> but for me, it's essential because holiness, for several reasons, which, you know, redirect me if I, I get too far afield. But I, one is, for me, holiness, I think for a lot, a lot of my life, holiness named the ways in which God was other than me, right? Holiness is a way of referring to how God is God and I'm not. But I think John Webster gets this exactly right. Holiness names the way in which God is with us for our good, right? So he is the holy one in our midst. So holiness, in, in, in a sense, means the ex- exact opposite of what I was told it meant, right? Instead of it meaning God is other than us, it means God has drawn near to us in ways that maintain our integrity, that maintain our, our humanity in relation to him. So I think it's pretty clear. I hope it is pretty clear that in the book, what I'm trying to suggest is if our calling as human beings is to be mediators of the holiness of God to the rest of creation, then everything depends on the character of that God, the character of that holiness, both for what we should expect to find in scripture and for what we should expect the process of reading scripture and performing scripture. Should look like and and i don 't think and this is what I told you know Luke Timothy Johnson all those years ago is like for me i don 't know how to think about any project without it coming back to the question of the nature of God right I mean I think it 's always about that at some at some level, and I wanted to make that central for this book quite literally, like the the middle part of the book, because I wanted to make it clear that this is not not only not a technique that I'm proposing, it's also not just a reflection on scripture. This is about what does it mean to be human and who is God? And without thinking about those things, we can't answer what scripture might be or should be, right? Uh, we, ha- we have to come back to, w- which ultimately, of course, that's Christology, right? What does it mean to be human and who is God is the Christological question, but it's, it's in the doctrine of the holiness of God that I think we, we catch a glimpse of how those are related and interrelated in Christ. And the last thing I'll say about it for now, unless you want to push me further, is that I, I, one of the things I'm critical of early in the book is evangelical tendencies to kind of slide divine characteristics into their accounts of Scripture Right, So that suddenly what we're saying of Scripture is what we should be saying of God. And I wanted in the book to make it clear that I'm trying not to do that. Right, I'm making every effort to say, these are the things we say of God. And therefore, these are the things we say of Scripture. But we can't elide that difference. Right? We can't simply say, because Scripture is God's word, it shares God's attributes in some kind of flat way which i know you know any careful theologian would would avoid that i mean i mentioned webster already who who does a good job of making that distinction himself but at the popular level that gets lost a lot right and especially the second edition of the book i'm writing with pastors and laypersons in mind so i think one of the things that kind of troubled no pun intended the first edition of the book is that i think that what was motivating my writing was very much a concern for popular Christianity but the way I wrote the book was too academic and so what I've tried to fix in the, in this and I don't know um, if I was successful or not but what I tried to do is you know take out the languages take out some of the jargon add some examples right try to find ways to make sure I'm communicating with the people that are I'm actually trying to yeah, speak to about yeah.
0: these things. Yeah. I can confirm that there was no Latin in the book, at least that I remember. <laughs> no, um, there should not be. Um, yeah. It's, you know, going back to the concept of holiness for a moment, I appreciated your attention to like two potential errors regarding holiness. One of them is that it drives a wedge between us and God, that God is just other and therefore not near to us um, or not relatable. Uh, and then, on the other hand, we're, we become so holy, you know, as the sanctified people that it it drives a wedge between us and the world. And so that's that's the other side of it is the vocational aspect of the the priestly role that you talk about uh, for uh, for Christians. Could you just talk a little bit more about uh, us as priests and how that plays into your understanding of Scripture? Absolutely, and th- and this is, you know, back to the point
1: about Christology, right? That what we're, what we see in Christ is not only that God is near to humanity, indeed, God is human, but that living that human life, he lives it in the company of the sick and the the wicked and the broken, as well as the pious and the self-righteous and so on. And I I do think we've made those two mistakes, right? We've we've made holiness about God's otherness from us or our otherness from others in part because we've tried to define holiness in relation to sin, right? That that holiness is sinlessness. And and the heart of the central part of my book is no holiness is the character of God revealed in Jesus Christ, and to be holy then is to be drawn to Christ and to be where Christ is, is to be with him in his ministry to those in need, right? Which is, you know, part of what the, the doctrine of, of baptism is, is about, I think, which I sketch in the first part of the book, right? That to be baptized with Christ is not as our colleague, or at least for a little while, our colleague, Bob Eckblad puts it, you know, Christ is not baptized in the way that Israel is baptized, right? Israel passes through the sea and Pharaoh is drowned in it but Jesus is submerged in that same water, right? Like he goes down with the damned and that to be holy then is to be able to share that with him, right? To, to, to share in his holiness is to share in what it is that makes it so that God can be with us in ways that are good for us in spite of ourselves. So the, the, the call to be the holy people of God is a missional call. It's not, it's not something we have to overcome to be missional. It is It is what it means to be missional, to be to be drawn to those in need. And I think because of that, like if that's true, then what we should expect in Scripture is to have texts that draw us to that place, that tell us stories of people who live those lives and tell us what it means to to suffer in those ways and to be with those who suffer in those ways. Right. And I think that's exactly what we do find in scripture. I mean, I think that the, this is, I never cease to be astonished by how, not just how honest scripture is. I mean, I think that that's almost cliche at this point to say, you know, scripture doesn't hide the faults of its, you know, heroes and heroines. Right. I mean, it, it, it tells the, it tells the ugly truth, but, and that's true of course, but it's not just that it's it's how attentive it is to the lives of people it, it, the the kind of attention that the stories of scripture and not only the stories of scripture but but also the stories how attentive it is to these men and these women and these children and their experiences in the world and i think it it's calling us to share that kind of attention right like it to have that kind of attentiveness to what's happening in our own lives and the lives of the people around us.
0: Yeah. As uh, our friend uh, Brad Jerzak pointed out, like one of the things he would do in class sometimes is just walk through the headings in a normal NIV Bible with students in the gospels. And to make the point of how many one-on-one encounters Jesus has with people and just that process of walking through and, and seeing how often Jesus engaged the single person, um, is is a striking example of that. Absolutely, and and how,
1: you know, it's. I want to be careful here because that this might be a hard right turn, but I think that the. So I, I think, a lot of us are formed in Christianities that that kind of flatten these stories and, and take away their nuance, clean them up for one thing, but also. Kind of pare them down to some kind of Reader's Digest version of Abraham's life, and so much is lost in that process. When, and I think what most of all, what's lost is the sense that when you're reading Genesis, or you're reading Matthew, when you're reading Job, or you're reading Ecclesiastes—I mean, whatever text in front of you—is the, the, there's a kind of attentiveness in the text noticing things that you would think we you wouldn't notice if you were just trying to get the essentials right that i think it the cost of losing touch with that is enormous right enormous not just in terms of our ability to to read the text well but our ability to read our own lives well and the lives of people around us and that's another thing that's it was kind of central to the argument I'm making in the book is that there's some kind of organic relationship between the way you read the text and the way you read the lives of people around you.
0: Hmm. Could you give including an example, give, give an example of that, of like what it would mean to misread versus reading, reading well.
1: Yeah. And, and so I, I do think that in some ways, all readings are misreadings in that there, there, there probably are always better readings or, or fuller readings. I'm not so much worried about misreading as I, in the sense of missing some detail or, um, failing to see what's essentially being argued as I am a kind of misappropriation of, of a story or a a proverb or a promise for our own use, which I'll I'll come back to that in a moment. But here's, here's what I mean. I think, A few years ago, I had to teach a a kind of Bible study, and on a whim, I can't even remember what motivated me to do it. I decided to teach through 1 Samuel, and again, I, I don't even know what provoked me, but about three or four weeks into that Bible study, I realized how much I cared about Saul and the ways in which... As I read the story, I wanted to protect him. I wanted to protect him from the God character in the story. I wanted to protect him from Samuel. I wanted to protect him from being in the role he had been thrust into, right? And the, the sense of pain I had trying to talk about this. I mean, it felt like I was talking about a family member, like someone I care about watching their life be destroyed when they didn't want this, they didn't ask for this. Right. And they don't have favor. And I, I I think that what was happening, right. as I started to reflect on it and pray about it and talk about it with, with some of my mentors and friends, what they suggested to me is, well, God is doing something in your life right now, right? Kind of bringing your attention to souls around you, right? People around you who are, you know, others see as destructive and rebellious and, you know, not worth their time. And God is kind of attuning you to them, right? So I think they're the ones who made that connection for me, that, right, there's a way in which As God is shaping me, it shapes the way I read the text and vice versa, right? One of the ways in which God shapes me is, is I'm reading the text, right? So I think, I think there's a way in which the narrator wants us to feel that way about Saul. But I think part of the genius of scripture is that story reads differently depending on who you are, depending on when you're reading and I think at that particular time in my life, given what God was doing in my life, I was drawn to Saul in a particular way. If I read it ten years from now, I don't. I don't know what to expect. But yeah, right? I think yeah. I still will notice the ways in which the story yeah. is attending to Saul's
0: life, sure. but I don't know where my affections. Will yeah, lie. yeah. At some point later, you might be like, "Get him out of there." <laughs>
1: <He's> got, <laughs> Saul's got <laughs> to go. Did he do? Get
0: rid of him. <laughs> yeah. Right.
1: Well, and, and yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, I, I think <laughs> I th- exactly right. I mean, I think that that's you, we have to be open to at least other good readings that might come.
0: Yeah, one of the things I appreciated in your book was the way um you, you brought up Jonathan Sachs whose work on Genesis I've I've really appreciated and how he points out that Genesis as a narrative fosters a kind of empathy with figures like Leah and Esau and Hagar. You know, and it's and and you're not meant to mute that as a reader. You're not meant to sort of cauterize that sense of empathy with the outsiders, even if they are in the story rejected by God in some way.
1: Right. Well, I think the most controversial claim I make in the book, I think, is that the God who is authoring these texts, the God who's inspiring these texts, is not simply identical with the character God in the text, right? That what the character is doing, the character named God in the text is doing, is not always simply a, a, a trustworthy reflection of what God the writer, God the author, God the inspirer is doing in the text, right? And, I, and I, I mean, I know that's you know a controversial claim to make, which I'm happy to get into, but I think that to this point, I mean, I, I think what I heard when I heard Jonathan Sachs say that, and I, and I heard him say it before I read it, was it was a lecture he did at Duke years ago and I guess when he was writing the book but anyway in in that lecture he said it a little bit differently in the lecture than he did in the book and in the lecture what he said was what makes you think the writers of these texts aren't purposely moving you in those ways and I mean it, it I mean it literally gobsmacked me right that I because I think right up until that point I had always thought I knew better than the text did and I was trying to fix the problems I found in the text, right? That I I thought of myself as the enlightened reader dealing with unenlightened texts, trying to provide them with, trying to rescue them from themselves by providing them with creative readings. And as soon as he said that, I realized, first of all, my own sin and foolishness, the, the arrogance of that. But also, I mean, it's like, not just the stories in Genesis, but the whole of scripture suddenly is, wait a minute, what could be more like God than that, right? to, To be clever enough to put us in the position to make us think we needed to correct him. I mean, that is exactly what Peter does, right? I mean, after his confession that Jesus is the Christ and he hears that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die, right? It's... He puts his hands on Jesus to say, "No, you can't do that." And I think that that's exactly the position I was in. Having rejected the way of reading that I grew up with, I had fallen into assuming, "Well, the only hope then is to save the Bible from itself." And
0: right, right, to to kind of stand against the Bible yeah. in defense of God or something. Right. In
1: the, yeah, exactly. And and I, and that that lecture that I heard him give. I mean, I think really in that one line,
0: I realized. No. Right. I've had this exactly backwards. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to switch gears to the speed round. Yeah. Um, And so uh, just quick questions, quick answers. Uh, First question, um, what are the three most significant theological influences on you? In other words, like the figures that are most significant. And and before you answer, I want to try to guess. Okay. Okay. Let's hear it. So I want you to think of three. Let me know when you've got them. I've got them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm good. Okay. All right. Rowan Williams, Robert Jensen, and I had to go for an oldie. Origin. I think that's
1: essentially right. How did I how that? I, I, I think it? that's essentially right. I think you could tweak that a little bit. I, I had put in Jensen, George McDonald, and Gregory of Nyssa, but I mean, that's six in one hand, half a dozen in the other, really, because I mean, origin is probably where the praise should go. And in terms of in the ancient church, and I, I think you're probably right in that. I think George McDonald had more of an initial impact. I think Rowan Williams is shaped the language of what I'm doing probably more than anyone.
0: Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, you're, you're okay, so very I did, close. So I, I did. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah really. Right. Well. Um, so I use the uh, random word generator, uh, to, to come up with a, a word and then we're going to do, you're going to do a book review. So the, the word that came up is Rullian, and I had never heard this word before. Uh, and apparently, it means a rather large or rough-looking creature. Mm. Um, and so I, I put that into Amazon then, and, and the book is called "The Pentland Rising" and Rullian Green. So <clears throat> interesting, Green. Yeah. Um, so how how many stars do you give the book, and why? I like the Pentland Rising.
1: Um, so I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna guess this is like a four, three and a half to four star book, with. A great concept, not necessarily well executed.
0: So okay. you know, yeah. this is this Fair is enough. a
1: great idea someone had. Yeah, didn't necessarily yeah. have the skill to pull it to, off. Yeah,
0: need to polish the language yeah. a little bit. Okay, uh, what's the most significant book in in theology in the last fifty years? Oh my goodness, I think that you know,
1: I don't think there's any one right answer to that because it's going to depend on context. I'll tell you a few that jumped to mind. I know this is the speed round, but I, I think Bonifer's ethics is that last fifty years close, maybe not. Mm, probably a bit. It's older, older than that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that doesn't count. Last fifty years, I. I think Willie Jennings' Christian imagination is going to have a huge. It's going to. I mean, he, I, I heard him. Um, on the podcast, you know, a few months ago, I, I think that's not just because of the book though, it, that's a largely, I think, because of him and who he is in this moment, right? So I think, I think that's, that's at least part of the conversation.
0: Yeah. It's definitely a voice to listen to. Um, what, uh, Pentecostal theologians should we be reading? besides I would yourself? Say,
1: <laughs> well, some people wouldn't won't even let me count. Um, depends on which Pentecostals you ask. Uh, I, I, there's a lot of really good Pentecostal theology that's being done right now. I mean, one, um, one person I would suggest is Ricky Moore, who's an Old Testament scholar, who's never been widely known in the academy, although he and Brueggemann are good friends, and a lot of um, there's been a lot of fruitful dialogue between the two of them, and and Brueggemann is, I think, as indebted to Ricky as Ricky is to him. Um, so, I, I would I would definitely look look at his work. One of his students, a, a woman named Casey Cole, who's still not quite finished with her PhD, she's doing work on judges and kind of what she calls orthopathic readings. Of judges I think are really important but you know I I I really talk myself into a corner here because it's there really are a ton of young and some not so young
0: Pentecostal theologians that that people should be listening to but I I would start there okay Um, so this is this section of the speed rounds called is it in the Bible so I'm gonna read you three quotes and you have to tell me which one is in the Bible okay (laughs) Okay. All right. So the first, first, um, set of options, uh, God helps those who help themselves. Every day may not be good, but there is something good in every day or the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. <laughs> well, of
1: course it's the latter, but it, it is, uh, well, I'll let you keep asking the question. I'll, I'll hold my comment okay. to okay. the end.
0: All right. Okay. Um, uh, number two. Um, for every minute you are angry, you lose 60 seconds of happiness. Right. I bet you're thinking that's in Proverbs. All right. See. Okay. Second one. Uh, See yourself living in abundance and you will attract it. Or three vanity of vanities says the preacher. It's my favorite text in the Bible. So
1: of course I know this one.
0: Is it the 60 seconds (laughs) of happiness? (laughs) Exactly right. I have, I
1: have that tattooed on my body in two places.
0: Um, Yeah Uh, You're doing pretty well Who who says theologians Don't know their Bible Um, (laughs) Everyone says
1: that Literally everyone Yeah
0: Yeah right. Uh, The third set of options Okay There is no way to success Success is the way Uh, Second one The only limits in life Are those we impose on ourselves Or three There is a way that seems right But in the end It leads to death You found so many Of my favorite scriptures I'm not sure how you did this um, I, I what's the
1: source of the first one there? Success is the way.
0: Uh, um, like a, a meme on oh, nice uh, a, a quick Google search on quotes about success.
1: It sounds like somebody <laughs> did a mashup of like racist Confucius
0: quotes with a Trump <laughs> book. <laughs> it's oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! You, you you're prophetic. Hold on a second here. All right, because my next section is called "Name the Poet." Oh. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Listen. All right. You have to tell me who the poet is. My whole life is about winning. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone knows that. Another tattoo I have. Okay. All right. Uh, the next the next poet, uh, a poem, it's a, a little poem called Live Like Kings. All right. You have to identify the poet. I am really tired of seeing what's happening with this country, how we're really making other people live like kings and we are not <laughs> Oh <laughs> name the poet I
1: I'm just blown <laughs> away by your performance of that I I hope if if nothing else is heard in this podcast I hope people hear you read that I, I have no idea who that could be
0: Well that's that's from um well the book is called Bigly Donald Trump in verse <laughs> <laughs> Oh there's an entire book dedicated to this yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and there's also a book called The Beautiful Poetry of Donald Trump where they take his tweets and, and they do mash them up into Oh, a, my gosh. A, a, like, into verse. Who knew? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, all right. What's one idea in theology that you think needs to die? Come on, Chris, speed round.
1: <laughs> this is fast. You have no idea how long this normally takes me. <laughs> I mean, I... I I'm literally not sure where where to start. I mean, I, I think I think I would start with this since we're discussing it. This idea of holiness as sinlessness, right? That 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 God hates sin so much that he's repelled by it. I mean, I I think the I'm very much shaped here by. I got in a lot of trouble once, Uh, again, I know this is a speed round, but story, you can edit this out later. (laughs) Mm -hmm. No, we'll keep it, we keep stories in. I was asked to preach at this church on holiness, and it was a pretty large church. I went and gave the sermon, and the response in the moment was terrific, but the pastor wasn't present when I gave the sermon. Mm -hmm. Uh Uh-oh. And when he heard it later, he was just so overwhelmingly troubled that he replayed the sermon to his church. Live, like, like, you know, he, he played the video while he was in the room and then would pause it to correct what I was saying, right? But the... the An- annotated Chris. Exactly. Right? Exactly. A refutation of what I had said. But what I argued in the sermon and what I would, what I still stand by is that, you know, God hates sin only because of what it does to us. Like that there's nothing, that sin is... Nothing to God, except insofar as it damages us. And so, this notion that salvation is about God having to deal with sin because He's put off by it in some way is just, yeah, it need, that that needs to
0: die. Yeah, yeah, I can I can get on board with that. Is there not a sense of paradoxical otherness inherent in the idea of holiness? So, so not an otherness that would remove God from us, but an otherness that would transform us. Yeah.
1: Well, it's, it, it's an otherness in identity, right? It is, it's that God can be with us without being altered by us or altering us in some violent way, right? Like that there's I mean, one of the things I'm committed to theologically is that God cannot do violence. Not that he chooses not to, but that because of who he is, because his nature is what it is, it, it it's impossible for, it's as impossible for him to do violence as it is impossible for him to lie. And that i think is what holiness names right he can be with us it doesn't violate
0: and and he himself is not violated would you say it also sort of transforms though in the process so so like that i mean cuz you think about like in the book of leviticus where it re- says repeatedly be holy as i am holy so as god as god comes near he invites israel into this otherness that to participate in that with
1: absolutely. him absolutely and i think that the mark of that transformation is that we come to share that kind of nonviolent nature and here i'm not i don't mean this in some kind of like and pacifist sense that's not what i mean although i think we can have that conversation what i mean is i think god is with us in ways that it doesn't warp our life it doesn't you know you know you know what it's like when you talk about someone who sucks all the air out of the room like god is literally infinitely the one who breathes air into the room right like god's presence does not warp things they don't bend around him right like god establishes things and to be changed to be made like god is to become that kind of person to become a kind of non-anxious presence with others so that their lives aren't warped by our nearness right that when we're in the room we're not sucking the air out of the room right and i think that so yes i couldn't agree more. I mean, I think that's exactly what holiness does to us.
0: Yeah. It's interesting um, that how holiness gets linked to incompatibility with sin, because uh, w- one of the, as you know, the foundational texts in the old Testament is, is Exodus 34, where on the, you know, Moses asked for a revelation of God's glory, which is intimately connected with his holiness. And as, and as God's glory, his otherness passes by him, he declares his character, which is related to forgiveness of sin. So, so part of God's otherness is how the lengths he goes to, to forgive sin, you know, and, and and to, to deal with that. And so I think it's a moving toward sinners and sin in a way that's, that's not just leaving it alone, but is transforming that to, as you say, kind of establish us in our full humanity.
1: Right. And I think that's, you know, it's lots of people have made this connection before me, but the ways in which Jonah picks up that story, Mm -hmm. when he hears God say, go to Nineveh and tell them in 40 days, I will overthrow it. I mean, you know, there's this asymmetry in what God says to Moses about, you know, I will show mercy for a thousand generations, right? But I will not, I will not let the guilty go unpunished unto the third and fourth generation. And there's that, that asymmetry suggests something that Jonah recognizes right away. And that is, you know, God is always going to err, so to speak, on the side of, of mercy. And so, I mean, I, I, I'm with you.
0: Yeah. He's like, I knew you were going to be like that. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, I I have a question about Christocentrism. Um, and, And you talk in your book about Christological readings of the Old Testament and and this is something as an Old Testament scholar I've always struggled with um, because there's a kind of Christological reading, and I don't think you're suggesting this, but just help me work through it. <laughs> um, uh, there's a kind of Christological reading that's an overreading of the text where all the things we know about Jesus, we go and we find them in the Old Testament such that the Old Testament doesn't tell us anything we didn't know already. So, so what is a crystallogical? What's a fruitful Christological reading of the Old Testament versus a an overreading or a flattening or, you know, muffling of the Old Testament?
1: This is a great question, and I, I'm not sure I deal with this well enough in the book. I certainly have more I want to say about it. So, if nothing else, thank you for that. I one is I, I think I think we should be troubled by the anti-Semitic history. That that marks the Christian tradition, and we do need to be careful here. You know, I remember it's a famous essay, but you know that I can't remember the author of it. um, Talking about planting Christian trees in Jewish soil, right? That we're we're essentially there's there there is a way of reading the Old Testament christologically that that can be violent, violent to texts that belong to. The hebrew people to, to the jewish people and i think i think we need to be careful about that at least at least not move too quickly to that right uh, so i think that's that's a concern i think there's also a way in which there are some christological readings that i think are kind of allegorical or typological in ways that aren't helpful not only because they impose on the text meanings the text did not have, but also because they don't actually illuminate who Jesus is. They keep the text from saying what it wants to say about who Jesus is, right? So the right kind of reading is not, we know who Jesus is, so the Old Testament text must be retrofitted to tell us what we already know about Jesus. Like, that's not helpful, right? What we need to do instead is to say, somehow these texts... Do reveal Christ to us, but we can't know beforehand how. And they're speaking to us; we're not dictating the terms to them. The t- the Old Testament texts, I mean. So Christological reading that is kind of predetermined is, I think, problematic. Right now, I say that. I mean, there's nothing I'm going to read in the Old Testament. You know, so so for instance, like the 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 genocide texts or the uh, harim texts. I I am committed to Jesus is the full revelation of God. And therefore these texts cannot mean what they seem to say on their surface, right? What they seem to say on their face. But I think if I stopped there, it would be inappropriate, Like that's, that's premature. I think the next step has to be, okay, somehow Christ is speaking in these stories, which seem unworthy of him, that seem at odds with him. But he's trying to teach me something in these stories, trying to teach us something. I need to learn what that is, right? So, it, you know, some people aren't satisfied with that difference, but to me, it seems like everything is in that difference, right? To say, I know Jesus isn't like this, therefore these texts can't mean that, is not to learn anything from the texts. It's to simply reject them, right? I think we need to make that second move of, of course, God would never do anything that is unlike Jesus. But that doesn't mean we wouldn't get a story that forces us to see what we could never have seen otherwise, right? So, or, or allows us to see what we couldn't have seen otherwise. Does, does that distinction make sense? Yeah.
0: yeah, no, it does. And also I think there's a, a sense in which we have to pause and and make sure that we're not coming to the Old Testament looking for a Christology that the New Testament actually doesn't have either, or that is is far more sophisticated on, you know, so so I think about the, the you know, show them no mercy texts. And Walter Moberly has pointed this out. There's a lot of like fruitful connections between those texts and Jesus hard commands to gouge out your eye. If it causes you to sin, um, uh, to, 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 you have to, to follow Jesus. You have to hate your mother, father, sister, brother, to, to be loyal to him. So, so, you know, th- those, those kind of hard calls to discipleship that are meant to jolt, to disturb and provoke us. And then, you know, so, so knowing Jesus helps us kind of go back and think like, is there any resonance here between these? Right. And, and I I do think for me,
1: I would rather be troubled by the text. And and I, I mean, I have good friends who who make other choices and I understand I'm sympathetic to their reason, right? But, you know, I'll give you two examples. I mean, in the Old Testament, when we run up against the the texts, show no mercy texts, I have friends who would say, you know, that was Israel's understanding at the time. It's reflective of a, a stage in the history of God's progressive self-revelation. But now it, it serves only as contrast, right? We we yeah, have it a foil. It's a foil yeah. for what Jesus actually teaches. I, again, I'm sympathetic to their concerns and I think I understand the reasoning, but I I reject that outright. Like right? I I think those texts speak to us with the same kind of authority about Jesus and in Jesus name as the gospels do. Like right? I don't I don't hold to some kind of you know, play the gospels over against those texts hermeneutic, right? But l- let me shift to another example, and that is the, like the household codes and the ways in which they speak about women and slavery. I have friends, and again, I understand why they do it, and I'm sympathetic with their, concern, for the, with their concerns, but for them, they would say, you know, these texts just need to be silenced, right? Like, we just should stop engaging these texts, right? They reflect um, a misunderstanding of the time that we've now outgrown. And again, I think that's a mistake. I think that we have to let those texts speak to us, but that doesn't mean letting those texts speak to to us means that what we think their plain meaning is, is the one we're supposed to take away. Right. And so here's where, and I'm not, I'm not, this is, this is where I am deeply influenced by origin and that whole tradition through Gregory and into Maximus that, and Eriugena, that the plain reading of the text isn't the one we want anyway. Like, that's that's not what we're after here. And so, for me, yes, these texts plainly do sanction slavery, plainly do speak of women as second rate. But that doesn't mean we should silence them. It just means we have to listen for what is God doing in texts like these. So it's a it's 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 more that and that's more demanding. I mean, it's much harder Mm -hmm. to to live with.
0: Yeah, and it requires us to consider the full counsel of Scripture too, which is which is always hard work and 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 never a lone ranger job, is it?
1: That's right, exactly right. And I I think that's Mm -hmm. part of the if I can use this language, I'm I'm pretty leery of it. But the language of design, if we can talk about the design of Scripture, I think there's a way in which you know architecturally it's all mutually supporting so it it you know there's that image that origins gives that he said he learned from a rabbi about every scripture is a lock, is a is a key that unlocks another room another scripture in which is another key to unlock some other room i mean that that's what i'm saying here like i think architecturally scripture is everything leans on everything else right everything is buttressed by everything else and it's designed to kind of Force us from one text to another, and any reading that saves us from that is is not really saving us right it it's it's hurting us somehow
0: chris you um theres there's so much more i want to talk about with you but I, I realize our our time is is running long here just um one of the things i, I appreciate in your book is uh and I, know, I happen to know that you're an artist as well um which uh You can can maybe talk about the kind of art that you do. Um, Was your reading of Romans nine to eleven, and and you used an art metaphor there that I I had never seen deployed. Um, I've I've heard art metaphors used with scripture, but I'm wondering if I know it's hard in the space of a, a quick summary. But just to kind of sketch some of the the ways that you that art has helped you think about the act of interpretation, especially challenging passages like Romans 9 to 11?
1: That's a great question. And I'm not sure I know. I mean, this is another case where I'm not sure how reliable witness I am to my own experience. I think some of that is just intuitive for me. You know, it's just, a, uh, I'm doing it. And I'm not sure what I'm doing right in the moment. Um, but, I, but I think it's, I think it's something like this, that what art does or like in the case of that romans 9 reading you know the the painting that i talk about i mean i was there there at the service it was a church service and there was a a, a large canvas being painted while the service was playing out and the artist you know we started with one image and then it became another and then it became another and by the end of the service you know an hour and a half later it was this abstract painting these swirls of of greens and yellows and reds against this blue background. The painting is in my house now. The, what, what hit me later while I was teaching Romans nine to 11 is that the experience of reading Romans nine to 11 brought me back to that moment. Right? So it wasn't a conceptual link. It was, I noticed myself remembering it. Right? And, and I thought, why am I remembering that painting? Oh, this is why, because Paul, I, it seems to me, Paul is making these moves in which he's giving us an image and then replacing it with another and then replacing it with yet another. And by the time we get to the end, you know, it's just chaotic praise, right? I mean, it's just explosive, you know, God's ways are not our ways. Praise. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I thought that was just a really helpful way of, of thinking about, um, you know, using art to 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 then go back to the text and and say, does this... I know you, it was intuitive for you, but to 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 think through the act of interpretation using art, absolutely. And, really I, and I think
1: I think the thing would be, for if I were giving advice to students about it or friends, I would say immerse yourself in art and let it and and let and see what comes. Right? Don't don't try to make that happen. Just let it happen. Right? Like immerse yourself in poetry, immerse yourself in painting or sculpture or whatever. And I think down the road, once that's all the way down into you subconsciously, it, it can't help but emerge, I, I would think.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Do, you have, uh, do you have a favorite poet? You know, um, I have, that shifts from moment to moment too. I mean, I think the poet I would most interested in talking to right now is Christian Wyman. I mean, if I would love to get I would love to sit down with him right now and talk about the talk about his work. But I mean that, that shifts for me
0: all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I I meant to ask that in the speed round. So I thought I'd throw it in. Um, Chris, uh, I think we're, we're out of time, but, but I just want to say thanks so much for, for all your, um, all the work you did in this book, which I highly recommend people go out and read and, and wrestle with. Um, I think, I think it, it provokes good trouble. Um, and, uh, uh, so thanks so much for coming on. Absolutely. OnScript.
1: Thank you. I love the work you're doing on the podcast, so keep that up and thanks to thanks for supporting the book. It means a lot.
0: You've been listening to OnScript, Delectable Conversations on Scripture and Theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.